Hi, I'm Owen and welcome to the Bite Size Irish Gaelic Podcast. This is episode 24, Iver a Fihikar. Even if you're alone learning to speak Irish outside of Ireland, don't despair. Rest assured that there are thousands like you across the globe, all interested in tapping into Ireland's native culture. And for all about this podcast, go to www.bitesizeirishgaelic.com forward slash podcast. And today I'm joined by uh, Paul O'Connila, an Irish writer, Irish travel writer. Paul, what do you want to talk to you? I want to talk to you. I want to I was putting you on the spot there. <laughs> well done. Paul wrote a book that I was very interested in when I saw it online. So he wrote Secret Dublin, an unusual guide. And he was also named Irish Travel Writer of the Year in 2013. So, Paul, are you a Dublin man or where do you come from? I am a blow-in wherever I go. <laughs> I was indeed born in the city, Owen, but I grew up in Ballinasloe, County Galway. That's where I went to school. When I was finished high school there, I came back up to Dublin to go to university in Trinity College, Dublin, which is where we have our Book of Kells, a beautiful atmospheric university. And I studied English literature there, so very much sort of had a grow for English right throughout my school and throughout my college time. And as I was studying, one of the things I started to get more and more interested in was travel. And this is going back about 15 or 20 years when travel wasn't something as easy and as democratic as it is today, I think. We speak on the day, incidentally, when Ryanair here has launched its first smartphone app, which allows you to sort of book flights and check in and bring your boarding pass along on your phone. But back then, I was just intrigued by the whole sense of adventure to it. And I decided that this would be my dream job to be a travel writer and to be able to combine the love for English and travel a lot. And it took me about 10 or 12 years to get the two of them together. But lo and behold, I finally done it. I'm an exhausted man, but I'm a happy man. <laughs> and you dare to travel on Rainer, do you? I do. Uh, like Ryanair has gone through several personality changes over the years. It's a budget airline like Southwest in the States, I suppose, would probably be the best comparison. But it's funny, for years they were the airline we loved to hate. And their charismatic chief executive, Michael O'Leary, was a great man for riling people and coming out with the one-liners and threatening to charge for using the toilets on board the planes and all the rest of it. But in the last year or so, they have done a spectacular turnabout and allowing people to bring on handbags and laptops free of charge, Lord above, and go to the toilet freely. And uh, this app is one of the new sort of developments. So, yeah, I mean, look, at for me, if it gets me from A to B and it's not too long of a haul, I'll fly with anyone. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to go into some of your books. So you wrote A Secret Dublin. So you talk about travelling around, right? So I'm interested... What brought you back to coming back to Dublin, even if you were living there, but writing about Dublin? Is it what you know best? Yeah, I do genuinely love this city. This is always the city I come home to, and I'm always happy to come home here. I'm always happy to have it on the return ticket. And I still do get that glow 
when the plane comes in over Holt Head and you see the twin towers of the Rings End Power Station and the shape of Dublin Bay coming out of the clouds at you. And I love that feeling when you sort of come down and you touch the ground and you're home. And Dublin is a complicated place. It's a place that has gone through ferocious change in the last 10 years, like a roller coaster, really, of a decade we've been through. But I do, at the heart of it, I still do love it. And I love going in and spending an afternoon or spending a morning just walking around and going where my feet take me and looking up and looking down and trying new cafes and small museums that I mightn't have heard of and just wondering about a piece of architecture that I mightn't have noticed before or taking a route that's off the beaten track. And Dublin's a great city for that because it's not laid out on a grid like a lot of American cities. It is very much a big messy spaghetti of a city and you have the old medieval streets with the cobblestones you have the the Georgian squares that were laid out through the 17 and 1800s and then you have the modern 20th and the evolving 21st century city so there's layers to it as well that you can dig through I had always wanted to do a book about Dublin and I finally got to do it Mm, beautiful very nice you're definitely selling the city So for the first of the three spots that we chose for today, you chose them on the spot. You chose the Hungry Tree for an unusual or secret place in Dublin to visit. So could you tell us a bit about the Hungry Tree? I will. The book is called Secret Dublin, An Unusual Guide. And it's published by a French publisher called John Glaze, J-O-N-G-L-E-Z. And the brief for these books. You'll find a secret New York and a secret London and a secret Amsterdam and so on. The brief is to go off the beaten track and to write about places that would be intriguing both to locals and to visitors. And that's what put the hook in me. That's what made me want to write it. On the cover of the book, when you pick it up or order it online or whatever it may be, you'll see a tree, a huge tree swallowing an iron bench. It's a site that stops many people in their tracks. It's actually found in Temple Gardens, which is the park beside King's Inns in Dublin 7, which is just north of the River Liffey here in Dublin. It's where lawyers in Ireland basically cut their teeth. And the tree, as you walk into the park, the tree greets you at the south gate, actually. It's a London plane tree and it's been there, I think, from the early 19th century. And what has happened is that over decades, it has slowly expanded. Its girth has sort of let itself go like a middle-aged man's might, loosening the belt and sort of succumbing to gravity. The tree has gotten wider and wider. And of course, the bench dating from Victorian times also, has never moved. And so the tree has just bulged around it to the extent where it is actually listed here on our Heritage Tree database as an arboricultural curiosity. (laughs) So it has gone and got itself listed as well as just looking peculiar. I mean, the fact that it sits there and it has this unusual look about it is one thing, but there's a couple of other quirks about it. The senior members of an inn of court, I don't know if you knew this, are also known as benchers. So the sense that sort of time is getting its revenge on benches and benchers alike is also a sort of a, it's a quirky little touch too. And 
Is the bench big enough to sit on? I'm just trying to imagine it. Or is the tree kind of drooping over it too much? <laughs> it does droop over it. It covers the whole backrest. If you had a slim bottom, you would fit it on there. <laughs> so <laughs> it would depend on what kind of girth you were bringing to the party. But I'd say it will accommodate most people, yeah. Accommodate most people. <laughs> Lovely. So people who would be, say, flying into Dublin and would have an interest visiting some the places that you've picked out so how far is this from the city centre and like, would you travel to it by foot or by bus or what would you do well it is let me see I'd say from O'Connell Bridge which many people who would have visited Dublin would know it would be a 15 minute walk and you can get Dublin bus there's stops nearby on Constitution Hill but the walk is a nice one because it takes you up O'Connell Street past the GPO, which is the General Post Office here in Dublin and was famously a base for the rebel soldiers during 1916, which was the, the rebellion, a famous rebellion here in Ireland. From there, you pass up through one of the oldest Georgian streets in Dublin, which is called Henrietta Street. It's absolutely falling apart at the seams, dilapidated, but it has this gorgeous elegance still coming through the red brick buildings. So just to walk past that and then you duck through King's Inns and all of a sudden you're in this park and that's where you'll find the tree. I always, when I travel and always when I go to cities, I recommend walking and that's why. Mm, so I was going to ask you in Dublin in particular, if somebody was coming to visit, would you get them to even check out the city bus or is there any reason to? Yeah, that's a good point. To get your bearings in a city, it's a good thing to do to take a tour at the start, off the bat. Whether you do that with a walking guide, and there's plenty of those here in Dublin, or whether you take, we have a city sightseeing tour here with an open top double-decker bus, or whether you take a tour by bike, which you can do. I always tend to do those first, because then you get to terms with the layout of the city and you figure out what you want to come back for. Other people I know just dive in and just follow their nose, but that's the way I like to do it. Dublin is a very walkable city and that's the nicest way to see it, but you can always take a tour first to get your bearings. Yeah, I love that tip. So um, the next place you had chosen for the secret spots in Dublin was St. Valentine's Riddick. So what is that? It is literally... The remains of St. Valentine. Mm. And <laughs> I was stumped to find that they are here in Dublin because I would have assumed that they may be in Rome or Paris or some other city that you might associate with love and romance. But no, they're here on Anger Street in Dublin in a stashed away church called the White Friar Street Church. Other people would know it as, uh, well, officially, the official name is the Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. In there, in a little alcove, beneath a statue of St. Valentine is a little altar and there's a little brass inscription below that which just says plainly this shrine contains the sacred body of St. Valentine the martyr together with a small vessel tinged with his blood and inside that altar you can see a box which is maybe two foot long and one foot wide and inside that box it's like a russian doll situation here there's another box small wooden tied with a red silk ribbon and sealed with wax and inside that although i don't believe it has been opened anytime recently but inside that is what's left 
of the patron saint of love. Wow. And do you know anything about him, where he was from? St. Valentine himself was Italian, and the story about how he came to Dublin is interesting. There was, in the mid-1800s, I think it was the 1830s, there was a Carmelite priest named John Spratt, and he paid a visit to Rome. And he had a, a stonking great reputation as a preacher. Wherever he went, crowds flocked to hear him. And it seems hard to imagine now in the time before the internet, but his reputation preceded him as far as Rome. The crowds came and listened to him and they sent him tokens of their esteem, I suppose. And one token came from the Pope, who was Pope Gregory the Sixteenth at the time. And believe it or not, he gifted him the remains of St. Valentine which is kind of bizarre to think about it today. That he... Isn't it? Because they would be kind of sacred relics, I presume, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose the Pope has always had the pleasure of being able to do as he chooses. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, the remains travelled back to Dublin. They arrived here in 1836. That's a memory serves, 1836. A shrine was built to them. They lay in storage for some time, but in the 1950s, the cult started to develop around them and they were laid out in an alcove in the church. And it's there that they remain today. And funnily enough, on Valentine's Day, you can go in and you can get your rings blessed and stuff like that. But year round, there's a little notebook on that altar. And this is one of the things that endeared it to me. It's just a a little spiral bound notebook with pages of paper and a biro beside it. And in it are written petitions from visitors. And one I remember reading simply said, thank you for helping me and Natalie sort out our troubles. And then there was a little name signed under it. It just said, I'm never going to let her go. I love her forever and ever. It was almost as if this guy was writing directly to St. Valentine. That's what sort of brought it home to me. Whether or not you're religious or whatever religion you may be, everyone can sort of empathise with that sentiment. We've all gone through those kind of feelings. So just to see it written down in that old-fashioned way with a biro, I just loved it. Mm, Yeah, really nice. And just on the factual side of things, is there any dispute as to whether or not it really is his remains? Not that I've heard of. In fact, I think everybody's probably quite happy not to ask. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We like a little bit of romance and a bit of mystery to it, don't we? Yeah. So you had chosen a third spot of secret Dublin, and that was Napoleon's toothbrush. So tell us a bit about that, Paul. We covered various different things in Secret Dublin, all kind of things that you wouldn't necessarily think of doing when you come here first. And there are hidden parks, there are small museums, there are unusual quirks like the hungry tree and so on. But also we wanted to do some rooms and buildings that you can only access by appointment or you have to sort of go out of your way to get access to. And one of those is the Royal College of Physicians here on Kildare Street. Now, anyone who's been to Dublin will know that Kildare Street is a dyed-in-the-wool Georgian set piece. It's where we have the entrance to our parliament, the Doyle, as it's called in Irish, of course. And there's some gorgeous, tall, terraced, red-brick Georgian houses. And in the middle of it is a building housing the Royal College of Physicians. Now, people don't generally walk in here. You do need to make an appointment to visit, but it's a wonderful interior. And not only that, not only of interest for its archaeological detail, but also the exhibitions that they have inside. And I had no idea before I made an appointment to go in here what I would find. We've all heard of Napoleon, but Barry Edward O'Mara may not ring 
quite as loud a bell. No, it's not ringing <laughs> a bell for me anyway. <laughs> this gentleman was a physician from Ireland and he was the man who looked after Napoleon when he was in exile or when he was imprisoned, I should say, on the island of St. Helena. He was in prison there, if students of history will know, after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and left there, not in a cell as a modern convict might be, but he had various people looking after him. And one of them was O'Mara, this guy Barry Edward O'Mara, who was an army doctor from Dublin. And during their time on the island, the pair of them struck up a friendship and they chatted to each other. And in fact, Napoleon encouraged him to keep diaries. He famously said, it'll make you a fortune, but don't you dare publish them until I'm dead. And indeed they did. He went ahead and he published them. But the other thing is that Napoleon, who had a great sense of his own importance and a great sense that he would remain important throughout history. I mean, he may have been short, but his ego certainly wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. He gave him a number of personal effects to take with them when eventually they had to part company as snuff boxes one thing and most bizarrely probably is this toothbrush napoleon's toothbrush which when you walk into the college of physicians of ireland is there in a little display case just looking up at you a silver handle a little bit of ivory and the bristles coming up for it and there's not a bristle out of place let me tell you so i don't know whether he used it sort of daintily and carefully or whether it didn't get any use at all but it's sitting right there next to the snuff case and it's just one of those things where you go good god that is both you know it's weird it's eccentric it's unusual but it packs a real punch does and are there other things inside there at the royal college of physicians when you're visiting they have a wonderful library if that's your thing if you're into those kind of antique texts you can make an appointment and you can go ahead and browse through them and they also have a weird and wonderful and the kind of scary collection of medical instruments I don't know if you want me to go into detail on those, but they're... Oh, they're... not too much, thanks. I'm a bit squeamish. <laughs> you can imagine this stuff that's dating from the 1800s and 1900s when our medical knowledge might have been as enlightened, shall we say, as today. But each of them, it's funny, they are just so meticulously crafted, these instruments. And there's a couple of old leather satchels that would have belonged to doctors in days of yore. You know, you could just imagine like Dr. Watson or whoever it is going around with a satchel like this. Also, funnily enough, tuberculosis isn't a problem in Ireland today, but it was a big problem in times gone by. And there's a lovely little notice they have, a public notice from back in the day, which simply says, do not spit. This practice is offensive and dangerous and it favours the spread of consumption through the scattering of germs. So they did have some things right back then. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it did. Paul, before I leave you, I did want to throw in another question about people who were visiting Ireland, say from the States. Do you think there's any false impressions that, from your perspective, they might have before they visit Ireland of Ireland itself or of Irish people? What do you think? Definitely. Every time I go away to another country, I bring with me a false impression that I really enjoy having punctured and exploded and blown out of the water. But that's part of the fun of travel. But yeah, definitely they do. And as not just American visitors, but any visitor, one would be the food. I just met two Americans recently who had come over and were blown away at the food they were eating in Ireland because they had come expecting sort of bland food, bacon and cabbage and stew, functional stuff, lots of bread, 
just thrown up just to sort of fill a gap. And they came to discover that, of course, we're in the midst of, I'm quite an evangelist on this front, by the way, but we're in the middle of something of a food revolution. What has happened here, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years is we have suddenly got this newfound confidence about the food that we can produce from the ingredients that are available, the fish in the sea to the beef and lamb on the land to the artisan cheeses and meats and craft beers even that are being produced around the country. We've suddenly sort of sat up and went, hey, this stuff is good. And this stuff is not only good, but it can compete with produce anywhere in the world. And to come with that, we're getting chefs who are trying things out and quality restaurants, particularly in the cities, Dublin, Galway, Cork, Belfast, And that's the first thing I think people are going to really enjoy having their preconceptions blown away is when they sit down to eat. Now, look at, I'm sure you know as well as I do, it's easy to eat bad in Ireland, just as it's easy to eat bad in other countries. And you do have to do a little bit of research and you don't want to get ripped off. But if you tweet or you look on Facebook or you you go online, look for recommendations before you come, you'll be happily surprised. The other preconception is that I would say is people look at Ireland on the map and they think small country I can cover that in a week let's start off in Dublin and then we go to the Ring of Kerry and then we'll go to Clipsamore and then we go to Connemara and then we go up to Donegal and it's only when they're on the ground and they're suffering the jet lag and they realise that once you get off the motorways, things start to get interesting, that it becomes apparent that they have bitten off more than they can chew in terms of distance. And what you end up doing is just kind of tearing from one big site to another and missing out all of the little devilish little details and and encounters in between. And they're the things, I think, that make a holiday memorable. I would say it looks small, but it's a big country, not just in terms of personality and in heart, but once you start going down those smaller roads and into those little villages and into those little ruins, you're going to want to spend more time there. So I'd say less is more when it comes to Ireland. A short route and do it in gorgeous detail. Excellent tip. I love it. And the the places where you picked out from Dublin already for us, they were just beautiful, I have to say. Our friend at Bite Size Irish Gaelic, Jodie Halstead, she's a travel writer from Iowa. As far as I know, they're going to spend about five or six weeks driving the wild Atlantic Way, which I think you've written about on your blog. I have. Yeah, yeah. I know Jodie from Twitter, actually. That's gas, the way you know people on social media these days. And I've never met her, but she has tweeted and said that she's going to do the whole thing. And five weeks is good. It's good to leave that amount of time for it because... It's two and a half thousand kilometers in total. So if you take, say, 500 kilometers a week, now it doesn't sound much to an American who would easily drive that in a day, I'm sure, given the size of the country and the roads available in the States. But like we were saying, once you start following the nooks and crannies of the coastline, you're going to want that extra time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agreed. Just before we finish up, Paul, I wanted to say thanks to a couple of people as well because there's a couple of people helping with the podcast recently. So Ashley Brown, she's in the middle of Canada. She's helping to take over some scheduling of guests. She brought you on, Paul. So I wanted to thank her. Um, Because I was falling back and it wasn't fair to our listeners that we were just kind of falling out of schedule. It's meant to be every two weeks. And then to Sean Waldron as well, who does the audio production He's in the United States. So, uh, Paul, where can they go to find you and then to jump out to find everything that you've done, including your book, Secret Dublin, An Unusual Guide? 
Oh, well, thanks a million for giving me the opportunity, Owen. And people who want to know more, Secret Dublin is available on Amazon, so you can order that there. If you're in Ireland, you'll find it in any bookshop here. You can follow me on Twitter or you can visit my website. And both of the names are just simply my name, Paul O'Connilla. And the spelling is P-O-L-O-C-O-N-G-H. A-I-L-E. Excellent. And we're going to add those to the show notes as well, Paul. So I have to say, a good meal and good. Thanks a lot. It was lovely talking to you. Full show you too, Owen. Thanks a mil. And just to finish up, Paul, um, to leave a comment for this episode of the Bite Size Irish podcast, go to bitesizeirishgaelic.com forward slash podcast and go to episode 24. What I'm going to do, if you didn't catch the spelling, I'll link out directly to Paul on Twitter and to his main site where you can find links to his book as well then. So if you're loving the show, we'd really appreciate a written review on iTunes. That would help us a lot to spread the story of this podcast. And you can send me listener questions directly to podcast at bitesizeirishgaelic.com. Thanks to Tukumo for their music from Japan, which you hear on this episode under a Creative Commons license. And until the next episode, slán gafoy. Bye for now.